What if we build a dedicated IT stack completely from scratch with only one thing in mind, and that is an obsession that a device should be functioning anywhere in the world for less than a dollar per year. So not per month, per year. Budget overruns, brick devices, data breaches, Building connected products is hard. Welcome to Over the Air, sharp, unfiltered conversations with executives about their IoT journeys, the mistakes they made, the lessons they learned, and what they wish they'd known when they started. I'm your host, Ryan Prosser. Welcome back to Over the Air, IoT, connected devices, and the journey. My name is Ryan Prosser, CEO of Very. And today we're joined by Evo Rook, COO and president of Once. And we're going to be talking about something very near and dear to my heart, making IoT economically viable at scale. I think if you look under the hood, you'd be surprised how often that's not the case. Evo, thanks for being on the show. Good to be here, Ryan. It's a very important topic. We can do whatever we want, but it has to scale. That's right. That's right. It has to scale. So uh, I'm a big fan of what you guys are doing. For those that don't know, give us 30 seconds on once. Yes. Skill is what we're after, uh, not just for us, but also for our customers. We're a company. We'd like to think of ourselves as we work really hard to actually disrupt the IoT industry so that our customers can change the world. And what that means is we have built a global IoT network from the ground up, completely re-engineering the supply chain, if you want, of IoT. It starts with the connectivity all the way to the software, home built, to be able to do something that, quite frankly, not a lot of companies have succeeded before. And that is to give our customers the ability to read, collect data from sensors deployed anywhere in the world at a fraction of the cost that it was previously possible through cellular networks. So the fraction of a cost claim, I think, is what really sets you guys apart. Can you talk about, you know, that's the big, bold piece of this. You guys are saying not just fraction. I mean, it's a small fraction. You're talking about like what I would characterize step function price reduction of a thing that was previously done, but most projects couldn't make it economically viable. Can you talk about that piece a little bit? Yes. I mean, obviously, in the IoT world, there are many promises of simplicity and global and so on. But if you really want to create step change, you have to totally adjust your paradigm. Let me do one step back. When you think about cellular connectivity, all networks today, cellular networks have been produced with one use case in mind. It's got nothing to do with IoT. It's got everything to do with you and me and Phones. Now, a phone, that is about, in the US, 40 bucks on revenue per month. In Europe, slightly less, about 20 euros a month. Now, when you build your, you know, cellular networks with phones and those use cases in the back of your mind, you rack up quite a bill in terms of IT, in terms of core networks, in terms of all kinds of licenses, big companies, marketing dollars, what have you, accounting. It's very complex. It's not a surprise then when you use those networks and think, well, let me do that and connect things to it that they come up with price points that may not be $40, but are actually close to it. Because only the IT cost 
of an operator is already five bucks a year. Now, when you think about, well, what if I had access to all these cellular networks? And what if we build a dedicated IT stack completely from scratch with only one thing in mind, and that is an obsession that a device should be functioning anywhere in the world for less than a dollar per year. So not per month, per year. And that's the, the journey we set ourselves. Why? Because there's millions of potential use cases out there and billions, if you'd like, senses that could be connected, but it's just not economically viable. And the money and the capital and the networks was already spent. You just need to rethink the whole system, update your paradigm. That's easier said than done, of course, but that's kind of the starting point of where we went. Yeah, we see a lot here on the show, and I think folks see out in the world, that if you're really going to drive a big breakthrough, it needs to be built from the ground up. You know, so I, like if you're really going to drive breakthrough change, and it seems like that's that's what you guys have done. And I, I believe there's a, well, I'll get to it maybe a little bit later in the show, how you guys have gone about tapping into reducing the connectivity charges, but that feels like the real differentiator for you guys. We'll get to that in wrong side of impossible. But one of the things I wanted to that I was really intrigued by with you guys is use cases. So when you radically reduce the cost, it brings all of these really interesting use cases into the fold. I wanted to talk about that a little bit. One of the things that we see a lot at Very is like as soon as you're rolling trucks, for example, out to a sensor, you've totally blown up the economic model. And it seems to me that when you're not, for, I don't know, for example, like constantly reflashing or having to go out and revisit devices, you're, you're starting to bring in use cases that maybe didn't make sense before. Has that been you guys' experience? Is that the whole thing that ONCE is kind of going after? And can you point us at some specific deployed examples? That's actually a very interesting approach that you're taking and thinking about this. It almost feels like you've taken a page out of our operational playbook. As a matter of fact, the name ONCE comes from that very principle that we gave ourselves as a target when we designed it. The purpose of an IoT sensor that is deployed, which could be poured into concrete, which could be in a crop field, which could be in an elevator, which could be in hard-to-reach places, light poles, cars that are moving. The whole thing is visit it only once, deploy it only once. If you have to revisit that device another time, most of the times the business case is already Blowing. So the challenge, other than the low cost that we set ourselves, is how can you re-engineer this whole process to avoid having to visit a sensor or a device twice? Now, the first thing we've done, and you may, you may not know this out of the world, but you experience it all the time, cellular devices need to lock on and off a network. It is not always on. And then we were thinking, well, why is that? Well, that's actually because of billing systems of operators. Now, what if you did not have an on or off button on your SIM card anymore? So we removed it. In our philosophy and our technical proposition, a device is always on. That in itself already removes one big complication out of the logistics of a customer. And then the second thing that we've done is, of course, making sure that you can deploy it globally. 
So on any network. And then the third thing that we have done is when you sign a contract with us, it, the contract with the connectivity exceeds the economic life cycle of the device it is attached to. So that's why we come standard with a proposition that something is connected for 10 years. So when you look at the average, we actually have also done a bit longer ones for light poles. When your connectivity contract is longer than the economic life cycle of the device it is connected to, you do not have to revisit the device because of your operator or your connectivity. And that's the whole philosophy about once. Interesting. So the contract outlives the expected life cycle of the device so that you deploy and can step away. And the expectation is, I guess, that the customer, your customer, the device owner, is going to do that calculus and say, you know, you're not going to get everything to time out perfectly. So you something is going to last so longer than some other thing. I think this is the basis of chemistry and limiting agents. So the, you're saying the limiting agent here will be the life cycle of the device. The contract is designed intentionally to exceed the life cycle of the deployment of that device. For example, a, a temp sensor out in some agricultural setting. Absolutely. Um, the whole point is to outlast the device and never have to worry about running out of connectivity, running out of bundle, running out of data connection, because it's kind of interesting to think about it. Our highest ambition would be to be completely irrelevant. And what do we mean with that is because the customer have bought connectivity for 10 years, they don't have to worry about it. What they can worry about is collecting the data from the device, because that's where the real intelligence is. And as we said, and it's in our mission, yeah, that's why we say that we work really hard to change the IoT industry because our customers are actually changing the world. We said they shouldn't think twice about us. They should be thinking about what they can do with that device for its lifetime. The examples are plentiful. Uh, fleet, yeah, they, they have to have to bring in a car just to change out a device. If you have some of those trackers that are hidden in the car because you know they track against theft and so on. So these devices are hidden in the car because otherwise they'd be easy to take out. Now, I can tell you, when a company needs to bring back that car, look for the device, take it out and replace it just because of the operator, that's a lot of money wasted. Light bulbs on a pole. You climb that pole twice, that's more money spent on pole climbing than on connectivity across 10 years. So why would you ever want to climb the pole twice? And these are the... The examples where customers of ours can now do a business case that previously would have been too risky for them. Uh, in a different side of IoT uh, that's out of scope for today's conversation, you're seeing a lot of uh, innovation happen around shipping firmware updates because companies, you know, firmware is not a big deal when you have one, 10, 1,000, 10,000 devices, but around 10,000. And when you get to 100,000, a million, 10 million deployed devices, shipping firmware updates really starts to break. And you see some of the, I mean, shipping firmware in the way it's done today. And I'm not going to name names, but, you know, we work with companies, we work with a lot of companies that struggle with this, you know, and it's hard. It's a hard problem to solve. I think it seems like you guys on, you know, like I said, a different side of town are solving a different problem, important problem related to the scalability of IoT you know, things that work at one, 10, 100 devices, proving out a concept 
they don't work so great as you scale it out and the, the some of the locations get incredibly remote. And, uh, you know, as we're recording this now, June of in 2022, fuel costs are through the roof. Who knows what they'll look like tomorrow? But right now, they're not great. So you got to send somebody out in a truck and the fuel costs are 3x what they were two years ago. It feels like providers, companies like you guys are really well positioned to take IoT to the next level. I wonder if you could talk, I talk, you know, I mentioned this was coming. I, I'm very passionate about what I call the wrong side of impossible. I think I ask everyone. Every tech company, my thesis anyway, every tech company that's worth anything has solved some kind of difficult technical problem that nobody else has been able to solve. Either they solved, maybe it was solved before and they solved it in a way that, that makes things economically viable that weren't before, or maybe no one's ever solved it before. It seems in the case of once, I mean, certainly this is not an unsolved problem, what you guys have done. What you've done is solve it in a way that brings an entire gigantic ecosystem of use cases into play that were not in play previously. Can you talk a little bit about, let's not give away trade secrets today, but can you take us right up to the edge? Can you talk a little bit about like what you guys are doing is not just discounting prices. You have gone about solving this problem in such a way that it, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I mean, your approach is very different than what I've seen in terms of being able to, $10 for 10 years is not a lot of money you know, as you said. How is it that you guys have gone about solving this? Yeah, so you're right. Uh, to put things in perspective, if you operate in a market where the usual price was about a, a dollar a month and we turn it into $10 for 10 years, I even have conversations with customers and say, well, Evo, $10 a year is still a lot. I'm like, no, 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 $10 for 10 years. And they, they're like, whoa, whoa, what do you mean? Like, yeah, yeah, eight cents a month. I mean, and we make a profit, huh? Now, how can you, let me rephrase your question. How can you deploy a cellular connected device anywhere in the world, 140 countries today, for eight cents a month and still make a good profit? That's kind of how, how do you do that? Now, no trade secrets, but any big IoT company has two big challenges to be able to do this. Software and buying network. When you're an operator, you've got network economics, but producing software inside an operator is expensive. When you're a virtual operator, you've got very good IT because you do not have to work in the complex IT system like an operator needs to do. And with all respect for operators, that's a hard world. Operators, they need to do lawful intercept, uh, 911 compliance, very heavy billing and accounting. So it's logic that their IT is more expensive than virtual operators. So a virtual operator has lower IT cost, but they have higher network costs because they need to buy their networks from operators. Now, what if you had the owner's economics of an operator and the IT advantage of being, being a clean sheet digital cloud-based company? And that's the trick that we solved. We participate in the wholesale market being able to buy capacity in bulk courtesy of two very important shareholders in our company. So all kudos to them to see that as a vision, being Deutsche Telekom and SoftBank and other investors now drawn in as well. And then combine it with own IT. You cannot cut corners. You have to build your own software. 
And we have our software development center in Riga, of which we're incredibly proud. 80 brilliant individuals who have coded the whole stack themselves. And that's how you keep your cost low, your control high, and minimize the cost of basically raw materials in our business, which is called capacity on the network. Eva, follow-up question related to that. And this is more of like a pinch zoom. Let's like to take a closer look at what you're talking about. It feels like we're talking about what I would characterize as a wholesale opportunity here. So you guys are like participating in the wholesale market to can you expand a little bit on like how you guys are able to crack this market and, and provide these prices to customers? Because that feels like the real breakthrough. Yes. I'll try and keep it as simple as possible. The raw materials in our business is basically capacity on networks of operators. Now, as I said earlier, these networks have been built with one use case in mind, phones. Phones use gigabytes of data on a monthly basis. IoT devices use very little data. So what if you could participate in the wholesale market, trading volume based on phones, and you could buy based on sound bites that the IoT devices actually produce on a daily basis or a weekly basis when they pull the network. So that's in a nutshell what we've done. We have been able, with our shareholders, to find a way to procure capacity to participate in the wholesale market on a global basis, buying capacity in countries. And it's the global nature that is so important. More than 70% of all IoT use cases are actually global or international, which basically means that we do not take just from operators. We also give to operators because we let them participate in the international market. Now, without going into too much detail, you have to deeply understand how the wholesale market for raw materials of IoT cellular capacity works, find good partners that have an enormous buying power on that market because they represent big countries, which means big volumes, and then make sure that you let the operators with whom you negotiate benefit from international traffic that you bring. I know it sounds a little bit like Akrakadabra, and maybe it is to a certain extent. It's also because, as you promised me, no trade secrets on calls. That's right. That's right. Talk about the future of once. You know, where is this story going? You guys have a revolutionary idea. I think I mentioned there's a couple of companies I think are doing really cool things to help take IoT and make it actually scale. I see, I think you guys are one of those companies. Play this story forward a little bit. Where is Once going? What are we going to see from you guys in 2023? When we have you back on the show in 24 or 25, what do you think will be your biggest growth category for customer type from now till then? Yeah, so we have disrupted first the market for low bandwidth, which of course is more than 80% of all deployed sensors in the world already. So that's a big chunk. But what comes next? is the market for high bandwidth. And you recently did an, a podcast with Rob, you know, used to work for Ericsson, and you spoke about high bandwidth, 5G, CBRS, fascinating podcast. And when I listen to that, I'm like, yes, 
we need to disrupt the high bandwidth market too, because as relevant as the low bandwidth market is today, it is only a question of time before robotics, AI, and video are going to become common goods of IoT. And for low bandwidth, we have lifetime. For high bandwidth, we want to build unlimited. I want to transition now to, you know, I always love to ask guests, you guys are deeply in the IoT space. You're, you personally, deeply in the IoT space. We're start, we're going towards a wrap here today, but who are some companies out there that you guys are dealing with, that you're dealing with in the IoT space that you think uh, not enough people are talking about? The first that comes to mind as a company that I really admire is a customer of ours called FlashNet. It's, it used to be a small company. They're much bigger now in Romania who are changing the world of smart lighting by doing something very clever where they're transforming existing light poles into smart light poles without having doing double climbs and so on. And they're lighting up entire cities, small cities in Europe, in the Middle East, and soon also in the USA, even the capital, of course, using our technology. But FlashNet is such a small company with a brilliant idea who is suddenly digitizing the entire world. I think Laurent, their CEO, is a brilliant individual. I met him a few times. I like his vision and he's executing it. Another one is actually a competitor of ours. I like the fact that Core went to the stock exchange, our public company right now. They, uh, it's not easy to be a public company nowadays. But if you see what they're doing in the medical world, if you see how Romeo has professionalized as a CEO of that business, how an IoT business should be run on its own feet, yeah, I have a lot of respect of the hard work that they are doing. So all kudos to Romo in that respect. And the third one that I believe is a company that I admire because they're so invisible. Yeah, my biggest ambition is to be the complete irrelevant biggest IoT company because people don't have to worry about us, but about their own business. There's a company that I love quoting. It's a company called Semtech. And I'm actually not going to reveal who the CEO is because his secret is to be invisible. But what they have done introducing LoRa to the world as the company behind LoRa is unbelievable. I have tons of respect for that company because they are so big yet so invisible. So maybe I should not have mentioned them, but I really admire them. That's right. They're not invisible anymore. Normally, the last question in this closeout lightning round is, you know, how can folks keep up with you personally? But we're fortunate enough to have a Dutchman here on the show today. And right now, the markets here in the United States are down, I don't know, 5% on the day in one of the worst tech markets of the last, uh, I don't know, 20 years. As Do Dutch people look at asset bubbles and say, like, is there sort of a national pride because of the tulip price implosion? You say, listen, gigantic asset bubbles is our thing. Like, this is cute what you've done here, but we invented this. Uh, <laughs> that's one that I didn't expect. Quite frankly, there's a reason that I live in the U.S. <laughs> you know, I'm a Dutch guy that moved to the U.S. on the back of the first bubble in the 90s. <laughs> I was never back. But to be frank, I admire the U.S.A., for the ability to invest in the future because they believe 
that it will happen and therefore it does happen. And I admire the resistance of the American economy because th- you know what? This bubble may burst today, they'll chase another one tomorrow because ultimately everybody knows that growth is driving progression. And that is not, if you ask me, some capitalist thinking. No, growth, whether it is in nature, whether it is in personal development, whether it is with your children, whether it is in nature, growth creates life. And that's true for economy as well. And yes, there will be a correction. But you know what? I believe we'll survive this one too. So I actually, as a Dutchman, say, I think the Dutch should chase a little bit more bubbles, at least Europe should. And you know what? Be as resistant as the US. That would be my personal opinion. I love it. What a great answer. So th- this was a total curveball. And uh, no, I love the answer. Okay, so now back to regularly scheduled programming. Evo, for folks at home, they love the story. They love what you've got to say. How can people keep up with you? Keep up with me is basically the usual answer, I guess, is with LinkedIn. In LinkedIn, I regularly post, but only when I think it's relevant. I'd like to not, I'm not somebody who tweets all the time. I'd like to talk when I believe I've got something to share that's actually relevant for those who follow me. And the other way to follow me is actually just in the press. I actually do spend some time trying to do podcasts, trying to to give a bit of wider explanation of the why we do things. So, And that's not always one channel. It's a channel like this. Because I always say to people, don't ask me what we do, ask why we do it. And then you you need more than 40 words on a tweet. I love it. Yeah, it is difficult to answer why in whatever it is, 100 and something characters. Exactly. Evo, that's a wrap for today. Thank you so much for being on the show. Well, very much like the format and I very much like the show. I am looking forward to uh, following you, Ryan. I appreciate it. So thanks again for being here and thank you for listening. Join us next time as we meet with another IoT executive to talk about what went wrong on a journey that went right. Over the Air is brought to you by Very. To find out more about us, head over to verypossible.com and make sure to search for Over the Air and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else great podcasts are found. Don't forget to click subscribe to ensure you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Very, thanks for listening.